Hello, and a very good evening to each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at St. Paul's. And on behalf of the St. Paul's Institute, as well as Tear Fund, our partner in this evening's event, I want to wish you all a very, very warm welcome and a successful evening. This evening's event is the second of three in a series held in partnership between the St. Paul's Institute and Tear Fund that aims to explore connections between inequality and the green economy, particularly with a view towards notions of circular economy and how they might be implemented. The first event in the series was a round table held on the 6th of June. This evening is the second event, and the speakers will use much of what was learned there as a starting point for the discussion. And then following tonight, we will have uh, later on another discussion on how to turn all this uh, good conversation into some concrete actions. From the Institute's perspective, this series works well with our work here on income and wealth inequality, as well as with our stewardship work. Experts often come together to consider a problem, perhaps even to resolve it, but often forget to consider the knock-on consequences of solving one problem in either creating or worsening another. Um, it's what the Germans call a schlimmbesserung, an improvement that makes things worse. <laughs> it's important that in our efforts to create a greener economy in order to reduce man-made climate change, we do not further increase inequality. And one of the questions that will be raised this evening is whether the concept of the circular economy could help both reduce environmental damage uh, and resource depletion while at the same time reducing inequality. And this requires a fundamental rethink of the traditional way of thinking, which presumes the best way to reduce poverty and inequalities to grow our way out of both problems. So before I introduce your moderator for the evening, both Tear Fund and St. Paul's Institute really do want to uh, take a moment to thank those of you who gave a, a donation to the event when you registered on Eventbrite. Such contributions are um, very important and helpful to cover the costs of this evening's event uh, and so that we can produce more of them on relatively uh, limited budgets. So both organisations are really very grateful uh, to you for your support. And so I would now like to introduce Paul Cook, who is the Advocacy Director for Tear Fund. He champions Tear Fund's two major advocacy programs on global movement building amongst uh, Christians for a green and fair global uh, economic system and fostering the development of national church-based advocacy movements in the global south. Uh, Paul has over 20 years of experience in working in NGOs in advocacy, human rights, conflict and interfaith dialogue as well as development and environment. Uh, he is extraordinarily welcome, and I will leave you uh, in his very capable hands. Welcome. Thank you, Karen Mark, and thank you, all of you, for coming, and thanks to our panel for being here this evening. 
looking forward to a really interesting discussion. Uh, it's wonderful to be here in this uh, amazing institution uh, to have these kind of conversations. And uh, particularly this evening, looking at this whole area of inequality and green economy, these two massive challenges and how they come together in the world that we're in at the moment. And we're particularly grateful that you're here. We're, we're conscious there's some other big discussions going on this week uh, as we head towards Thursday. So it's great that you can be here uh, to join us for this one. And I'm sure you'll be fully involved in the others as well. Um, you may have seen in your program, so originally the Tier Fund's uh, chief executive, Nigel Harris, was due to moderate us this evening. Unfortunately, uh, the world of humanitarian disaster relief agencies being what they are, he has many other crises that have unfortunately have called him away today. So I'm, I'm here instead. So thank you for bearing with me. For many of us uh, working in the area of, of campaigning and justice and advocacy and, and issues of poverty, uh, like many of you, I'm sure, at the end of last week, would have been um, upset by the tragic death of Joe Cox, MP, uh, who very much came from that world and spent her life uh, fighting uh, for issues of poverty and injustice. And as we go into this evening, we did want to just uh, remember her and uh, what she did and uh, the kind of causes that she fought for. And, and many of us coming from that sector uh, are supporters of TFAN, Oxfam, other organisations, uh, and many of our staff will be in Trafalgar Square tomorrow at 4 o'clock uh, in order to commemorate her life and celebrate those causes that she fought for. And anyone who wants to join us is very welcome to do so here. Uh, but as we go into our discussions this evening, do, do bear that in mind and, and uh, just taking a moment to be thankful for her life and what she gave and the implications for the kind of causes like this. Okay, thank you for that. So moving into this evening then, the, the, this massive issue of uh, green economy and inequality. Just a few words from me to uh, open us up and then I'll introduce our panel. So over the last 200 years and especially the last 50 years, we, the world has seen amazing improvements in uh, poverty levels coming down, uh, huge improvements around the world as the global economy has expanded around our world. And uh, again, those of us working in the development sector in recent decades have seen the numbers of people living in extreme poverty reducing significantly. And that's, that's good news that we should celebrate as a result of that economic development. However, in the last 30 to 40 years, it's become increasingly aware that there is a flip side to that story. That as we look at our natural world, the environment in which we all inhabit and on which that entire economy is based, uh, that, that has come at a cost, that the, the economic development and growth that we see has been driven by a high consumption of fossil fuels and the high consumption of limited uh, natural resources. And in the last decade or so, it's also become increasingly aware that whilst we may be doing quite well globally on tackling extreme poverty, levels of inequality within countries and between countries are also growing as a result of that same system. Uh, and uh, we are seeing uh, whilst many have been lifted out of poverty, other communities, uh, ethnic groups, even whole genders are being left behind uh, in that race uh, out of uh, extreme poverty. Uh, so as we go into the world today then, we see this progress on, on, uh, through, delivered through economy on, on extreme poverty, but they're, they're increasingly aware of the challenges that we face going forward on the environmental side and on the inequality side. At the end of last year, we had the Paris Agreement uh, on climate change, which is a big step forward. 
but by no means the complete solution to the problems that we face on these two fronts. So as we go forward, how do we wrestle with taking the best of what we've seen of economic development, continuing to drive down poverty, whilst at the same time not destroying our natural environment and not increasing the inequality that we see in society? And so this evening, our panel will bravely attempt to bring these massive themes together as we look at green economy and inequality together. We have four speakers or helpers. Uh, so to kick us off, originally, uh, Dr. Irania Hult, uh, forgive me if I've mangled the pronunciation, you can correct me later, uh, who is head of research at Oxfam and will open us up looking particularly at the issue of inequality. Uh, she'll be followed by Tony Greenham, who's director of economy, enterprise and manufacturing at the RSA. And we'll talk about the links between inequality and green economy. Uh, and then Ken Webster, who is head of innovation at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who will look at this concept of circular economy and how that can help us with these challenges. And finally, Joanne Green, who's my colleague, senior policy advisor at Tier Fund, who will look at particularly the circular economy in the global south in the developing world and how that might help us there. Uh, they'll each come up, speak, present uh, for up to 10 minutes. I'll, I'll ask them a question to unpack something of what we've heard. And then at the end, we'll, we'll open it up to, to you and the floor. We'll have about 20 minutes for questions from the floor. Uh, so do, as you're listening to them, do get your, your thoughts going uh, with, for questions you might want to ask. Uh, always a tip, when it, whenever you ask for the first question, you get a, nobody puts their hands up. And five minutes later, the whole room's got their hands up. So the tip is, Get your question in early, get it ready, get it in early, and you can shape the following debate from there. So you've been well warned, so I'm expecting to see lots of hands and questions later. For those who wish to, you can uh, tweet uh, during the event, and the hashtag is Green Economy, hashtag Green Economy, uh, to contribute to discussion that way. But uh, without further ado, can I invite Irania up to open us up? Just, just tall enough to reach over the edge. Goodness, it's quite a privilege to be here. What an amazing location. 26 years ago to the month, I moved from the Netherlands to start as a researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development. And that's quite a while ago. <clears throat> we looked a lot at greening and at inclusion. So a lot of my work was around participatory resource management. I've since moved away, done other things, seen other shores, and my recent re-arrival to British shores only a few months ago. Now at Oxfam, social justice is the lens and the set of priorities through which we approach our work. And I'm really struck how after a generation of policies and actions, there are not just two strands that are running in parallel, and those are the two strands we're talking about today, but three strands. I won't complicate the discussion further, but um, for me, they're, it, they're very integrated. It's not just about trying to figure out how to reduce inequality, and I'll speak to that in a minute, how to certainly increase the greenness of the planet, but also not to forget inclusiveness. And for me, the inclusion dimension is actually really critical because the people that shape the agenda, um, well, that's what the agenda will be. So um, to give an example, when I started a few months ago, I spoke with um, the executive director of one of Oxfam's offices, and that person was saying that the focus of, the, of their work would be around access for the poor to energy and water. And I thought, okay, fair enough, but what are you doing about the water side of it and the energy side of it, not just on the access side of it? 
because let's imagine in your best world, all the poor have as much access to energy as the rich and have as much access to water as the rich. You're going to not have a country worth living in very, very soon. And that gave a bit of pause for thought. And I was thinking, goodness, there's still quite a bit of work within Oxfam as well to try and bring these strands together. And I think that Oxfam is you know, one of many, many organizations that are really trying to figure out how do we zip this up? How do we bring the two parts together so that it makes sense, not just in the short term, not just for those who are left out, but for the long term? So what I wanted to do briefly was to talk about what we know about inequality, why it matters, and make a brief link for the other speakers to the green economy. I'm a little bit of a fraud because I started early, uh, recently I mean, um, and so I'm building all of, the, all of the data I'm sharing is that of my colleagues um, in the research program that's going back three years. And it's quite phenomenal research. So the journey with the, that they took started a few years ago where they looked at the 2013 data and they started looking at um, the amount of wealth that existed and where it sat in terms of deciles, in terms of each 10% sliver of the population. And then they compared that, so that was one data set, they compared that to a data set which was of the richest billionaires in the world, the richest people, the Forbes list. And in 2014, the first shocking stat um, hit the deadlines at Davos, which was that 85 uh, richest people in the world were as wealthy as the lowest 3.5 billion people in the world. Um, a year later, another calculation was done, and the stat had shifted and worsened, and uh, it was 80. And so there was a rapid calculation, and we figured that by this year, um, what the richest 1% would have the same wealth um, as the, the remaining 99% of the world's population. But we were pipped to the squeak, I think is the English expression, um, uh, by uh, Credit Suisse, who actually said that in 2015 this had already happened a year early, earlier than our own predictions. So in January this year, we've, we keep doing these calculations. The new statistic, I don't know how many of you know it, but it's 62 people who now own the same as the bottom 3.6, population have grown, has grown, 3.6 billion people in the world. That is just massive. I mean, that is just makes no sense economically, that makes no sense morally. It's a huge problem. We don't know what the trends will, will do next year, of course, and that's part of the problem, is that this wealth goes up and down with uh, the, 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 this, um, the financial system. It's not actual annual income, but it's, it's assets that, that come and go with the stock markets, and they've been doing some funny things this week here in Britain. There's another part to this, which is not just the kind of outrageous scale of inequality, but it's the trends. Um, and this is part of unpacking averages. Averages are a real problem. Um, one of the uh, reports, uh, the recent one, looked at how the gap is widening. So between 1988 and 2011, uh, there was a general accumulation, and people who are into growth would say, wow, great, 13 trillion more dollars in the world economy. But then if you look at where that went, that was where some of the shock, uh, we, kind of, we were kind of doubly shocked, as it were, that the richest 10% had captured 46% of that growth. And the, while the bottom, you can definitely, some of, there's fewer people living off $1.9 a day, for sure. 
but they captured 0.6%, not even 1% of that income growth. And we know this is an underrepresentation. All the statistics we use are very conservative. The richest do not report their wealth and their income, um, and therefore we, you know, the, in, in accurate ways. Uh, I think the Panama Papers revealed a lot of insights about some of those practices. But then looking within countries, the UK, um, last year the richest 1% had 23% of the wealth. In Zambia, seeming success story, between 1990 and 2010, 3% growth. Yay, growth. Um, GDP, up from $230 um, on average to $1,500 on average. That sounds pretty impressive. But if you know that now there are twice as many people living in extreme poverty than in 1990, the story is just not good. So. These are kind of the, this is the scale of, of inequality at a global level, at a, at, a, at a national level, and you can kind of go down. I've been involved in research at regional level within countries in Latin America, for example, and there's inequalities at all these levels. But there's also other kinds of inequalities, not just wealth and income. And a former colleague of mine, Richard King, did a marvelous report um, <clears throat> uh, that came out for uh, I don't know, I've got a, my crib sheet, um, Extreme Carbon Inequality, it's called, for Paris. And that's where the link to some of the green economy problems occur. So you have the 10 richest, 10 percent richest people are responsible for 50 percent of CO2 emissions. The poorest half of the population only use up 10 percent. So there's a whole range of different inequalities around which the stats, they're quite difficult, the statistics, because we don't have them for all countries, we don't have them with enough uh, precision for all countries, but what we can gather, it's starting to show a picture of extreme and growing inequality. So why does it matter, inequality? First, and Oxfam really is, has shifted, it's, it's always focusing on, on poverty, but it's shifting its by shifting to inequality, it allows you to look at, have a more systemic view of what drives poverty. So if you only focus on poverty, you can tackle that by providing products and services to the poor, but it would allow you to be blind and stay blind to the structures that keep poverty locked into the levels that it's at. So it allows us to say, well, why? You know, where, where's the distribution of this? It also allows us to take the idea of inequality into other domains. So we're starting to see a lot of really interesting research, and we hope to be able to contribute to that as well, about how different inequalities intersect. Um, so we know, for example, that um, those who have more wealth are able to um, um, flee from um, from vulnerable situations. Uh, we know that uh, those who are most exposed to uh, the effects of climate change are those who also have the least um, income. We know that health issues, I was looking at some of the statistics, but I, there's lots of correlations, but you don't always know causality, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. There's a lot of correlations between inequalities um, in the West and, um, and, and health exacerbations of health. So we know that there are, there's likely connections between inequalities and negative effect on various kinds of, of health problems. Um, for example, it could be as much as the effect of smoking, um, was what I heard Richard Wilkinson from the Spirit Level say last week. Um, 
but we also know that increasingly the link between inequalities and, for example, consumerism. Uh, inequality also breeds social, kind of, it, it destroys the social fabric. Social cohesion is incredibly important for societies that stick together and to make uh, uh, decisions in its collective interest. So there's a, an increasing link between inequalities and consumerism. So focusing on inequality and really understanding the scale and how the intersections work help us to understand the dynamics between them. For Oxfam, a really, really important aspect is the link between inequality and the privilege of power. They go hand in hand. For example, uh, between the Copenhagen and the Paris um, Agreement, um, so between uh, 2010 and 2015, the number of so-called carbon billionaires have, has grown from 54 to 88. Um, their combined personal fortunes have grown by 50%, uh, from 200 billion to 300 billion. And it's um, not disconnected from the pressures that they can put on the system for subsidies and decisions that favor their kinds of economies. So in the United States, for example, fossil fuel in industries spend $430,000 per day on lobbying, but that's only the declared payment. That's not all the other kinds of uh, money flows that are related to the industry. So Oxfam is looking increasing at what we call political capture or influence rigging that allows these inequalities to be sustained and aggravated. So for us, it's issues like ending tax havens. You will have seen that, I, I, I think, many of you here recently. Uh, re redistributive policies, so investing in public services, because those are known to have an equalizing effect and to lifting up um, the poor. Uh, those living with poverty. Metrics matter, so we're, we're part of the questioning of growth as a logic, as an organizing concept, and wondering at what, po what point does growth no longer benefit a society, and, and can you talk about arrival, having arrived somewhere that is collectively defined in terms of, of shared well-being. So, final words, linking it to the green economy. Um, it can be fair, a green economy, but it also doesn't have to be. Um, it can be captured by new green jobs, by those who already have more. Um, it can be um, not very inclusive if the systems, if the, the new kinds of enterprises are not also accompanied by economic democracy. Um, it can be fair and it can be green if toxic industries, I'm very intrigued by a question that a colleague in ODI raised, is how do we deal with the toxic industries, the ones that are not contributing, dismantling them, whose jobs are at stake there, where does fairness come in there? It's not just about creating new jobs, but it's about actually trying to rid the world, in quotes, of those that are actually part of the problem. And there's an enormous inequality agenda there, just as there's a gigantic green, green, um, green agenda there. So for me, if we can tackle the questions of greenness, always keeping in mind not what wins and loses, but who wins and loses, for me that would be where a very critical guiding principle for bringing these two agendas together. That's it. Very Very Do you want to stay there? Fantastic. I mean, magnificent tour of a massive subject in a very short space of time. So thank you so much for that, for kicking us off. Just one question before we move on. Um, so you talked a lot about you know, some of these truly staggering statistics and, and, and the, the trends in recent years. Any thoughts? Is that something that's always happened? If we went back decades, has it always been like that? Or is something 
different than perhaps it might be 40, 50 years ago? And, and maybe something, if I can sneak another one in quickly, is there anything more about what's driving that? Is that those at the top capturing and rigging a system to get more from it, or are there other dynamics there as well? Okay, I'm going to take my little crib sheet. Um, so you can't see this, but there's a little, a little curve here about inequality in Anglo-Saxon countries between 1910 and 2010, and um, it's not static. Um, so this is only this is a little this is a curve um, that looks at um, how the share of top earners as percentages of the economy between 1910 and 2010, and you can see it. It started. Um, uh, it was very high in the, in the turn of the previous century, and then it really went down with a lot of redistributive policies in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, and then recently it's really shot right back up to, to those levels. So it's, it's definitely a dynamic that relates to decisions that are made about what matters in, in policies. I think it's so incredibly complex um, that it's very hard uh, to unravel it all, but the... Um, um, historically, I don't know when, for example, tax havens started, but we do know that trillions and trillions of dollars, hundreds of trillions of, of I should say, pounds in this audience, are, uh, are not made accessible to society, and that's a fairly recent phenomenon, mm. that, that, that hiding away, which is legal. It's not, you know, it's not actually illegal, and that's part of the problem. You know, we're allowing things that are wrong, but legal, to persist. Um, there's... Um, there's also, we're starting to do some research on the, the trends of the disinvestment in, in health and education systems and how that's affecting uh, the poor. But those are studies that I, we haven't finalized yet or that haven't come together. But they're critical questions to look at. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I think another round of applause for a big subject in a very short space of time. Uh, can I invite Tony from the RSA to uh, carry us forward from that opener on inequality and the links into uh, green economy? Thank you very much, Paul. Well, um, perhaps to pick straight up from your last question, if I may, to start, I think uh, what's changed in the last 40 years is that there has been um, a, a, a distinct set of economic policies which have led us to where we are. And that's those are deliberate decisions about designing the economy. And that's kind of the theme of my, uh, what I'm, my the few remarks I'm going to make, actually. I think we need to tell a new story about what the economy is and how we can choose to manage it. So uh, I just start off with that. So this is taking a step back, really, from that inequality point before I come back to the green economy. So ask ourselves, what is the economy? Um, I don't know how many people in the audience have trained as an economist, but... Uh, I, Often, the definition goes a little bit like this. Uh, it's a system of institutions, rules, and norms for using resources to meet human needs and aspirations. I say a little bit like that because the textbook definitions normally miss out the word aspiration, and uh, it normally just says allocate scarce resources, and misses out the fact that it's a set of rules and institutions that do that. Instead, we have a story of the economy that we, there's a sort of cultural narrative of the economy that says it sort of emerges in nature. You know, the economics is a science, you know, it's a bit like the study of physics. We have a lot of, um, the metaphor is Newtonian physics, you know. So the laws of supply and demand are presented a bit like the laws of thermodynamics. 
You know, these are, these are natural laws. You can't fiddle with them. They are what they are. And uh, this gives us to the idea of a free market. So this is something, again, a free market is sort of in a natural state. And you mustn't interfere with it too much, you know, because that, that will pull us away from, from what would be the natural outcomes. So um, this, of course, leads on to the idea of there only being one way of doing things. There is no alternative. Yeah, the, economy, the economy works the way it is. Markets are the way they are. You can't, you can't interfere with that too much because if you do, then we'll all be poorer for it because you're mucking up the way the economy works. Now, this, um, this is quite a powerful uh, free market myth. It is quite powerful, but it is a metaphor that is uh, really very um, misaligned to the reality of what the economy is. So I'd like to sort of suggest that we need to have uh, another story of the economy just to make this point. Why do I say free market myth? Well, you can't have a market that is free in any sense of social conventions. You can't have a market that works without property rights. If you have property rights, you have to have a system that decides who owns what, that allocates property rights. And you have to have a system that will enforce and uphold those property rights. Those are all uh, social conventions. They are rules and laws that we've constructed so the point is that if the uh, system is socially constructed, it is something that has been designed. And therefore, it's something that if it isn't producing the outcomes that we want, we can redesign it. That sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, but, uh, but obviously, if it's so easy, why we haven't done it? Well, I think one of, part of the reason is, is this misunderstanding of what the economy is. So I'm suggesting to you that it's really a set of institutions and rules and norms that we can design. It's not like the laws of physics. It's not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's a social institution. So we need a new metaphor. So, uh, you know, possibly, and I'm not saying this is the best one, but um, it's topical, thinking of it more like a series of games and picking one completely at random let's say football, uh, that really the way that that works is that you have a set of rules that are collectively agreed. We have a set of institutions, clubs, leagues, associations, supporters, groups. Within this, players, managers and supporters have individual agency to decide what to do. The players on the pitch determine the outcome of the game. Nobody's talking about central planning. This is a free market, but it's one that we recognise that the rules are very important to how, what the outcomes of the games are. So, you know, in football, if the quality of the game isn't everything we think it could be, we change the rules. Too many teams playing for a draw, we give more points for a win. Uh, creative players getting fouled too much, you toughen up the rules on foul play. Rich clubs becoming dominant. When a lot of sports, the lowest placed, league, uh, lowest placed team in the league gets the first pick of the best players for the next season as a natural mechanism for making sure you don't get a dominant, powerful club that always wins. We don't have that in football, of course. So these are all rules that have been designed to give us a good game in sports. So we, I think this is a better metaphor for understanding what would give us a good market, good markets in the economy. We need to change the rules. So, as I said, if it's so easy, why haven't, why haven't we done it? Well, I would suggest that... Um, Although it's quite liberating to think we can redesign it around the outcomes that we want, what are the outcomes that we want? Who is to decide this? Who is to decide what is the right level of inequality? Well, who's to decide what is um, the right level of sustainability even? I mean, what are the goals, the right goals to aim for? And here's where it gets tricky, because um, Lorena set out really well. There is a, there is a political uh, inertia 
the vested interests that benefit from the current system certainly don't want to change it. So I think at the RSA, we've come to the conclusion that we need a renewal of um, democracy, in fact, if we are going to change the economy. And so we've designed a, a project called the Citizens Economic Council, which is going to take 50 to 60 citizens representative of the UK population, and we will go through a year's worth of deliberative conversations uh, to decide, those citizens will decide what they think the goals of the economy should be, and they also will look at what policies they would recommend for, for meeting those goals. And of course, this is just one group, and we will do it, and we'll publicize it, and we'll let other people have the techniques and the tools to run their own groups. But we're trying to show something that it's important. Because the thing about deliberative conversation is that it is about learning how to listen to each other. It is about empathy. It's about compassion. It's about understanding that we can have differing values and different priorities. But we can discuss those in a way that can reach a shared platform for action that we're all happy with. It doesn't have to be a consensus, majority decision. There are other ways of making decisions. So we want to showcase that because we, to be honest, feel that representative democracy is not doing a very good job. We also feel that the current alternative we're experiencing right now, which is a referendum debate, isn't, is doing a, probably a worse job. <laughs> so we need to invent a new form of democratic uh, process, and we think this is much more about deliberative democratic engagement. And then maybe we can set some new goals, and maybe we can design e economic policies to meet those goals. In terms of those goals, the RSA does have a view on that. I mean, I'd like to set out, just offer what, what we think those are, and therefore how inequality relates to the green economy. So we see three layers, and, and these, these are not rocket science. You'll see these repeated in the Tier Funds report and, and what Oxfam say. But those three layers are planetary health, universal economic security, and meaningful lives. The planetary health speaks for itself. Um, you're probably all aware that we've already smashed seven climate records so far in 2016. I won't give you the litany of, uh, of, of depressing statistics, but this is measurable, planetary health. We, can set, we know what we need to achieve. Paris told what we, what we need to achieve. So that is the first layer. The second layer of universal economic security, um, it's remarkable. If you look at the Beveridge Report in 1942, you look at Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights in 1944, and the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, you'll find them remarkably similar on what they consider to be the basic allocation of resources to meet human needs and as a platform for their aspirations. You know, and that's access to decent homes, decent work, universal health care, universal education, and financial security in old age sickness, uh, or just for bad luck. Now, even in Britain right now today, I think, uh, I'll be interested in if any of you think that everybody in this country has access to those five things, because I don't think they do. So if we can't even achieve that in one of the world's wealthiest economy, economies, then uh, you know, that's troublesome, because we need to achieve it in all the world's economies. And the final uh, layer for us is meaningful lives. So uh, we do need to have a, a higher conception of what the economy can allow us to, to achieve in our lives, to pursue creative pursuits, to achieve our greatest potential, to um, consider the age-old philosophical and theological questions of what is a good life and how should we lead it. This, these, these are questions to which economics is not irrelevant. But inequality threatens all of those three layers. I think we've sort of explored how inequality can worsen 
the environmental impact. And, and just a quick word on that from an economic point of view, I suppose, is the idea of something called positional goods. The reason why inequality matters so much is that the very wealthiest, their consumption will naturally be aspired to by the people who are the next wealthiest down. And the more that you have inequality, the more you get this consumption arms race. Now, just to pick one small example, the cost of a wedding in the States has doubled over 20 years. Now, I very much doubt that the guests are having twice as much fun. <laughs> statistics also shows that marriages do not last twice as long. <laughs> in fact, curiously, there's an inverse correlation between the amount of money spent on a wedding and the likelihood of breaking up. But nevertheless, this effect is very real because, of course, you've got the lavish parties that we see that the billionaires throw, and the people who are actually very wealthy want to ape that lifestyle. It's a, it's a consumption answer. And of course, as has been mentioned, one of the sort of worst narratives that, that I feel about the um, dynamics of population growth and environment and poverty is the idea that it, it's, you know, the environmental problem is because of the overpopulation of the poor, when, of course, it's completely about the overconsumption of the rich. So inequality matters to the environment. It matters to universal economic security for the same reason, because if we are going to have basic provisioning, you cannot allow so much to accumulate in the hands of, of, of so few. And I'd say it matters about the, the idea of meaningful lives, of social fabric, of social cohesion, of the idea of what it is to live in a community. To have such extreme levels of inequality, again, is a threat to that very social cohesion. So creating a green economy cannot be done without addressing the social dimension. So leading into sort of thinking how the circular economy can help with all this, I think it's interesting how, for me, and the RSA has worked on the circular economy principles, uh, as well as the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who have lead, lead, you know, very much show leadership in this area. But the circular economy has evolved from starting as something quite technocratic to then, I, I feel, involving so quite a technical problem. How can we produce and consume in more efficient ways? To having this idea of a restorative economy, so actually, it must fit within planetary boundaries. Uh, and I think now it almost deserves to have an explicit social dimension. But we want an economy that's circular, but it also matters to us um, what's happening in those factories. How are the workers getting treated? Do they have a good standard of life? And also, it's not just, this isn't a, a free pass to consume. You know? If we can make consumption efficient, we can carry on not worrying about consumption. Bottom line is, in the wealthy north, we have to consume less, and that's got to be part of the story. And so just to finish, actually, with, uh, with a quote from somebody uh, much more eloquent than me about the relationship between uh, uh, humans and nature, E.F. E. Schumacher uh, once said that, um, you know, we have to redefine our relationship with nature, basically. And what he said was, modern man talks of a battle with nature, forgetting that if he won the battle, he would find himself on the losing side. Well, again, some massive themes there uh, covered uh, very eloquently in a very short space of time. Thank you, Tony, for opening that up for us and, and you know, this idea that actually we, this isn't just something that happens to us and we have no control over that we, we have capacity to shape that and what some other loads to us might be. I can challenge a bit. So one of the challenges, you talked about renewal of democracy uh, and to get the kind of economy that we might want for the environment for, for the poorest. Um, isn't, isn't there a challenge? It seems to me in like country after country after country, 
uh, people have had the choice between that, that kind of model or they've had a choice that says, you know, actually we want cheap holidays, we want secure jobs, we want more stuff, you know, we, we want more growth, we want more uh, improvements on our own material lifestyle. And that's what they voted for, isn't it? Isn't, so is, is there really that? Uh, is renewing democracy not going to give you even more, perhaps, of some of the things you're worried about? Well, no, I, th I think my point is exactly that within our current system, where you have once every five years in this country anyway, you get to vote for a choice of roughly two parties with up to now pretty similar policies. And that's the extent of the debate about the economy. There's no debate about the goals of the economy. It was in fact the appallingness in our view of the quality of debate in the 2015 election that led us to do this Citizens Economic Council. I mean, we could have a deliberative exercise talking about everything from anything from health policy to, you know, but we've chosen economic policy deliberately. So the, the, I, what I'm suggesting is that if you have a deliberative process, the point about that is that it allows a conversation to develop where you um, have to take account of other people's point of view, understand the trade-offs and the impacts. It's very striking that realistically some industries are going to have to die. So that means some people are going to lose their livelihoods. That has to be in the room in that conversation. But it's only through having that kind of quality engagement, I think, that you'll, you'll end up with people's values being aligned with the policies that come out. There's a lot of research that shows that asked individually, our values are very much upholding you know, a healthy planet and more equality and sort of a strong social fabric. The problem is, is that when asked, people don't believe that anybody else has those values. <laughs> so when they go to the polls, they will sort of work on the assumption that everyone else is selfish and in it for themselves. So each of us individually is going along thinking everyone else is selfish. But actually, if we're able to connect our policies to our values, I truly believe that we would end up with popular support for the kind of policies that, that we suggest in, in the Retir Fund report and elsewhere we need in order to get the kind of world that we want to live in. I think we can reconnect these, but it needs a different kind of democratic engagement. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks again. And if I can invite uh, Ken to come up and take the conversation more into this circular economy concept that's been touched on. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thanks to the previous speakers. Uh, ten minutes on a, a little bit around these, or pointing towards possible solutions as far as they go. Um, I'm from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, though I am speaking today in a personal capacity. This isn't policy. Uh, I've been invited to join this uh, fantastic round table, so I think I can uh, start off by saying I want to pick up on this idea of the metaphor of the markets, the idea that we've, we've, we've probably come to the end of the discussion around an economy being like a machine uh, in which there are natural rules which relate to machine ideas. Uh, the supply and demand has mentioned, the idea of a market as an arbiter. It was almost as if God was replaced by an arbiter which was supply and demand and it was natural. As, as pointed out, there's nothing natural about that. But what you have to change first is the metaphor. And the reason for saying this is that George Lakoff, a cognitive scientist, has done a lot of work in the last 20, 30 years identifying that almost all abstract thought is metaphorical in origin. We don't work rationally. We work against a framework which is essentially metaphorical. So if you think the human is like a selfish individual, a part of a machine, a one-sided view of human nature, and that uh, to maximize 
their utility, they will make these rational decisions about how to use resources, you're falling already into the trap. You aren't, of course, but one can <laughs> fall into that trap of thinking that this is how the world is. But the good news, of course, is that we've discovered through not only cognitive science, which emphasizes we have very strong empathetic natures as well as self selfish natures, much of learning is by trying to think your way into other people's minds, after all, and feeling sensitive to what they're saying. So um, the metaphor that we perhaps move to, and scientists here will uh, know this very well, is that we have taken much more from system, systems with feedback. Uh, living systems are a good example of it, complex adaptive systems. These are systems full of feedback. And they're not predictable, they're, you know, they've got patterns, they've got a sense of direction, but they are just full of feedback. All good learning is about feedback, it's not about instructing people, it's about the exchange. Good relationships, communication is two-way, it isn't informing somebody. And when it comes to an economy, that's made up of information, material and energy flows, and isn't that also going to be a complex adaptive system? Isn't it going to be full of feedback and depend upon it? So what on earth are we doing with a linear economy? Which is take, make and dispose, and the only loop that seems to be in operation is the income and expenditure loop. So it's almost saying that we have a, uh, a changing worldview which says much of the world is full of feedback. There are no real world systems which are mechanical. And, uh, and then going on from that misapprehension to saying that, well, we could perhaps uh, do a little bit less harm in our throughput economy and our take, make and dispose, we can make it less bad. We can perhaps lower the carbon uh, cost of it, as though that was adequate. But that was what would fit in with having a mechanical, linear, reductionist view of the world. Now, in the last 30 years or more, this has been changing, of course, but it does seem that economics is, uh, for the most part, not uh, fully in play with this. There are people like Eric Beinhocker and many others who work on complexity economics. But what's that got to do with the circular economy? Well, absolutely everything. Because if you don't conceive of things as take, make and dispose anymore, if you see them full of feedback where loops are always closed somewhere, what do you think climate change is but the closing of a feedback loop that we started some time ago? What's, what do we call, what, we invented waste, because in living systems there are no, there is no waste. It all goes somewhere, because when people say, I'll throw it away, where is away? There is no away to throw it to. We sort of know this. So the challenge for a circular economy is to harness this potential of closing the loops, but also doing something else, which is shifting from throughput to, if you want to call it, round put. How do we get value out of keeping things in the cycle and at their highest utility for the most, or the most appropriate period of time? It doesn't mean an endless loop, uh, you know, a magical machine that doesn't ever run down. It isn't a machine, it's a living system in a way, or a complex system, which is fueled by energy from the sun that runs through the system. And things, yes, second law of thermodynamics, you can't beat it. But we could do a lot more with stock 
maintenance, in other words, keeping the stock of goods in service for much longer. Now, firms have understood this for a very long time. Edison, when he invented the light bulb, didn't want to sell light bulbs. The reason is, he thought, well, light bulbs can be made to last forever, and they can. Have you logged onto the web for that light bulb that's been running? It's got a webcam of its own uh, in uh, California at a fire station. It's been on uh, running since 1902. If you want to see how long light bulbs can last. Now, obviously, that firm who designed that didn't survive because <laughs> they couldn't sell it. But Edison had always thought, we won't sell them the light bulbs, we'll just rent them light. You know, we'll give them the service of light. And they'll pay every month for that service. And if any light bulbs do fail, we'll replace them for nothing. Now, this might sound fanciful, dear old Edison, given that it all turned into General Electric and, and they were selling uh, millions of light bulbs. But funnily enough, I was at Shiphol the other day, uh, at the airport, and Lounge 3 has 37,000 LEDs, and not one of them are owned by Shiphol. They don't buy any light bulbs anymore. They rent the service of light from an offshoot of Philips. Now, why is this a great idea? Well, it flipped things on its head. You don't have to say, well, how do we keep selling Shippel more light bulbs? What the Shippel gets is a performance contract for light on a surface. Could be the same here. And they guarantee that that light will always be there. And this enables the people uh, buying the service to have a lower cost. Uh, Shippel have saved 50% on their uh, energy bill. Uh, but it also means that Philips can keep investing in the latest technology because they can upgrade their LED lights whenever they like because they own the system. And so you get revenue. And this is the clever thing. Edison had spotted it right. You don't have to keep selling stuff if you can sell products as services. Now, this is how old it is. But what's changed, it seems, is this idea of getting services from products Airbnb, I'm staying in an Airbnb in London because I'm working this week. Airbnb is an example of being able to access assets more easily. Uh, who, who benefits, who loses? That's a, that's a big question for us here. But I just wanted to point the principle that if you reimagine things as a system that's full of feedback, you can do the two things. You can do the traditional get the materials back, as in recycling, but the much better thing to do on a resource basis is to imagine durables, sizable ones, heating systems, refrigerators. There's a, a company called Bundles that will sell you a service pay-by-wash, which is cheaper for you, keeps the machines in use for a lot longer, and makes them more revenue. So you do not, in the, consumer, in, in the durables area, have to always consider that, oh, I've got to have planned obsolescence if I'm a business. I've got to sell more of this stuff. No, sell them a good service which is convenient, which is better than the service they've got, and cheaper. And you can make more money and do huge amounts in the resource efficiency area. So what's this got to do with inequality? Well, the circular economy, and there's a lot to it, I can't do that now. But the circular economy is aiming to be regenerative because it is closing the loop. It hopes to rebuild natural and social capital. 
It hopes to make things accessible. And it hopes to make things abundant. Now how can it do that? Just magicked up. Well, if it's regenerative and it's rebuilding capital, it means that we can have agriculture, well, it's called regenerative agriculture, which understands the systems in which soils thrive and enables you to get actually more output, but you get all the other benefits and water, soil carbon, and so on. Now, these, are, these have been proved at scale. This tomorrow, in fact, Leontino Balbo from Brazil runs three million acres Sorry, I'm talking in old money here. Uh, but three million acres of organic sugar. Uh, he does it as a monocrop, but because he's, it took 17 years to figure out what made that soil just as good as the soil in the nearby forest, he's been able to design a sugar plantation system which needs next to no fossil fuel inputs. Almost none. And the inputs are mostly in the tractors. He's redesigned the tractors not to pressure the land. And he gets more output and yet much less input. And he gets all the other benefits of biodiversity, water, uh, retention in his soils. So it can be done. Regenerative agriculture is an example of thinking of a circular economy and applying it. Because it's systems thinking, not linear thinking, not mechanical thinking. It's systems thinking applied to resource questions. So you can make the economy work. But does that make it any less unequal? Well, there are two nice little bits in here. I'm not pretending that we're going to solve that big question, but there is our pointers. If you're able to design out waste, cradle to cradle, a design philosophy which is behind a lot of the circular economy said that waste equals food that everything in a system should be food for something else. Because as I said earlier, we invented waste. Now if we design out waste, because that was a design intention we had before, we don't have to have it now. You've got to be able to answer the question, what's next? After you've made something, what's next for that product? What's next for that material? It doesn't have a life cycle if it's a washing machine. It isn't even alive, is it? A washing machine is not alive. What's its next use cycle? What's the next destination for the materials in it? And we've helped to show that there is business opportunity and economic opportunity in thinking that way. So that's one thing. So designing out waste when the world is full of waste is a great opportunity to provide people with more employment opportunities, income opportunities, at the same time cutting the resource uh, demands. The second thing it can do, because you're rebuilding natural and social capital, you've got additional flows of products and materials. Because we're running on a very degenerated system at the moment, forests, fisheries and so on. Imagine if we can rebuild those through things like regenerative agriculture. We would be able to have, if not more, at least better. And the last one, this addresses the inequality thing a little bit I think, as Paul Mason has often uh, pointed out, we're moving into a more post-capitalist situation where the price of um, products, tools, materials, well, not necessarily just tools, but the digital manufacturing, the digital uh, possibilities are becoming enormous. Uh, renewables are now competitive. They're, you can do much more and more locally with food production because you've got digital tools which help you monitor what's going on 
track and trace materials, make new markets at all sorts of levels. So like Paul Mason, I'm very encouraged by the fact that when the people get the tools and really learn how to use them, they can create new opportunities for their own wealth creation, adding value from the bottom up, not just trying to see what big businesses can do to lower costs. And that is a source of wealth and, I argue, that it would be the source of a revived democracy. Because a revived democracy comes when you can participate in society. If you feel you have no place in it, if you're not participating, how would you or why would you bother with democracy? Because you don't have a stake in society. So I feel that done well, and it could be done very badly, done well a circular economy can contribute to that very aspiration to have a more participative democracy. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. It's really helpful to unpack that concept of circular economy and, and the, how it's influenced by looking at natural systems around us and some great practical examples there of Airbnb and Schiphol. Uh, regenerative agriculture. I'm conscious of time and keen to press on to questions from you rather than me. So if I perhaps can uh, just invite Joanne to come oh, yeah, sure. on up. Sure. I was uh, just trying to follow your lead by no, waiting. No, no, no. Uh, my apologies. Uh, so Joanne from Tier Fund, I, the handouts you got when you arrived give everybody's illustrious biography, so I've not given their, their full introduction here, but Joanne from Tier Fund will now lead us on looking at those issues of circular economy in, and how that may be relevant for people in the global south and developing world. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad that two of us this evening as, and the speakers have, have kind of got names that are really well suited to this topic. I think the other two should have changed their names, especially yes. for this occasion. <laughs> um, My name is Goddess of Peace. Oh, Goddess oh, of Peace. Well, Goddess yeah, of Peace. That's, that's that, that encompasses everything, really. So. <laughs> You've trumped me there. Um, so we've heard quite a lot about the, um, the problem this evening. Um, so I, I won't kind of uh, go into that again, um, but suffice to say, you know, that Tier Fund believes that we are kind of stuck in this bind right now, that the more that we um, kind of develop economically, um, the more environmental degradation there is, and that climate change is a very good kind of, or bad example of that. Um, and that there is this increasing consensus that growth needs to be um, inclusive, it needs to be green and it needs to address inequality. Um, however, the reality is that the current debate is very focused on the green part of the equation, whilst the kind of fair bit tends to be overlooked. And there's a lot of disagreement, as you might expect, over what economic policies are needed to pursue a green and fair agenda. And I am going to completely characterise now three broad world views um, that are offering solutions to the, this dilemma that we're currently in. So the first um, world view, or the first paradigm, I'm going to call the growth paradigm, so that's this idea which has been deconstructed really well, um, that growth must be pursued as the main purpose of economic development because it is growth that reduces poverty, um, whilst also we have to make sure that we manage environmental resources better on the side and, and also make sure everyone is included in that too. So growth is a purpose and we kind of need to sort of clear up these other things that happen as a result of growth. And the central role of the private sector tends to be emphasised in that whilst government's role is played down. 
Secondly, there's the everything must change paradigm. So um, there's, there are those who believe that growth results in more environmental degradation. Well, we all know that at the moment. But what that equals is that we have to pursue a no-growth agenda and no-growth economic models. So we all need to consume radically less. We need to grow our own vegetables and become vegan. Um, and government action tends to be viewed as benevolent and the private sector with suspicion. And then thirdly, we have the kind of tech fix paradigm, which is that um, for those who believe that technology is the solution to the world's ills and that we can have our cake and eat it, so we don't really need to change what we're doing um, in terms of our consumption and production patterns or our economic policies, but if we invest enough in technology, we can clean up the mess that we've created. And the market has created the problem and the market via technology will fix it. Um, so what do we think about these um, broad characterizations and these solutions? Well, for Tier Fund, we think there are, of course, good things and truth in all of these approaches. Um, but whilst we, we know that growth has been largely responsible for poverty reduction, we believe it has to be made for, to work for society and not be the taskmaster. So not all growth, as we've heard, has been equally as effective at reducing poverty, and recent decades of growth have not benefited all groups equally. And growth is becoming much less efficient at, for example, creating jobs. We believe that we do need to transform our lifestyles and economies in developed countries, but we need growth that is much more efficient in reducing poverty and raising basic incomes. And we need a growth in economic activities that promote environmental sustainability, whilst also concurrently needing a decline in economic activities that create more inequality and also create environmental degradation, for example, the consumption of luxury goods amongst the rich and carbon-intensive industries. And we also believe that technology has a vital role to play, but technology can reinforce imbalances of economic and political power unless the broader rules of the game are changed. And also, technology doesn't have to mean high-cost, high-tech interventions, as I will touch on later. So, where does the circular economy come into all of this? Well, we believe that whilst the circular economy does not solve all problems by any means, it is a very concrete, alternative, and credible model of economic development that research in developed countries has shown would provide a triple win. So these three things that it would address are increasing productivity and economic growth, and I think Ken has already outlined this, improving the quality and quantity of employment, and thirdly, saving lives by reducing environmental impacts such as water pollution, air pollution, and climate change. Now, we believe that those three same things could um, work exactly the same in developing countries. So we have um, research coming out um, in early autumn with the Institute of Development Studies, which is um, suggesting that circular mo models do indeed offer significant benefits for those living in poverty. So firstly, we believe it could provide a boost to growth by reducing the exposure of businesses in developing countries to the risks of resource volatility and also by providing growth at least to jobs for people in poverty and bringing people into the formal economy. So a quarter of those in extreme poverty are either unemployed or working in low quality, dangerous employment with the poorest often already involved in informal and hazardous waste collection and recycling. 
and the circular economy offers a way to improve their working conditions and incomes in addition to creating more high quality jobs and one of the examples that we um, have of this is from one of our partners in um, northeast Brazil um, called Diaconia and um, they have adapted an anaerobic biodigester they've adapted anaerobic biodigester technology so that small-scale farmers can use it to convert animal manure into cooking gas and a nutrient-rich fertilizer. So this enables the families involved to economize on their purchase of cooking gas and also increase agricultural production. But at the same time, by capturing and burning the methane provided by the manure, which converts it into CO2, the process potentially decreases the emission of associated greenhouse gases. Secondly, by improving, uh, one of the second ways in which we believe there can be a win for developing countries is by improving one of the key economic assets of people in poverty, which is their health. So through addressing the mortality and health burden of diseases associated with poor waste management, so approximately 9 million people die of diseases linked to the mismanagement of waste, and pollutants each year, um, we will significantly improve the assets of poor people. And for example, in um, Nairobi, another case that we explore in our research, there is um, a company there called San Energy, which is making human waste into fertilizer and energy, and is also creating 700 jobs. So actually taking something which is potentially lethal, especially to small children, um, human waste, and actually making it into something which can benefit society and the economy. And then finally, the circular economy concept also offers a worldview which places the economy firmly within the natural world. And we believe this is a worldview that more accurate, accurately reflects the reality of an economy facing volatile and rising natural resource costs. And according to this worldview, the economy must work with biological processes and not against them, emulating the circular models of nature. And this worldview marks a shift away from the exploitative, instrumentalist attitudes that have been the hallmarks of modernity. In fact, it's arguably a more similar worldview to that underlying some developing country perspectives on the environment, as well as, as the view presented in many of the world's great faiths. But despite all of these potential benefits, the concept of a circular economy is almost entirely absent from development discourse and practice at the present. We believe the circular economy offers an unparalleled opportunity that we must grasp. It's good for the economy, good for jobs, and good for the planet. Thank you very much. Uh, so again, Joanne, thank you so much for um, uh, bringing us into land uh, with the presentations you had. So we've had some, um, some really rich inputs, and it's great to see how the circular economy could be one of the tools to bridge that gap between the inequality challenge, the inclusiveness challenge, and, and the green economy challenge, and how we bring these things together. Again, in the interest of, of pressing into questions, I will uh, forego my question in order to uh, get some questions from the floor. So if you want to put your hands up, you've had plenty of warnings, so it would be great to... Uh, Get a few questions here. There's a gentleman at the front. Uh, Anna's got the mic, so if you just wait for the mic to come to you. I'll take three at a time, and then we'll uh, answer them. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, John Courtnage, and as a Quaker, I speak stand, standing up better than sitting down, so <laughs> I apologize if that's. Um, I'm part of the Occupy Economics Working Group and also part of Occupy Faith. And 
the question that I have is, I'll put it before the, the little introduction, and that is, would the panellists like to tell us what Jesus would say about all the stuff that they're talking about? And the reason I say this is that within um, Occupy Economics and Occupy Faith, we're actually talking about a, a double helix approach to economics, a praxis approach, um, which for convenience we either call the kingdom of heaven in the secular world, we call it the plan for cooperative socialism. So if you want to Google the phrase cooperative socialism, that's the meme. The question then is, so what does Jesus say about all this stuff? Thank you. Wow. There's <laughs> uh, a gentleman down there on the right-hand side. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Very interesting debates uh, and question and speakers. Uh, I want to mention about the inequality. Uh, nothing will happen unless there is a political will on the part of both parties or even third party, for instance. Uh, the failure on the part of the way the system of government we have, it's not possible to bring about a equity in this. The ones can look at uh, uh, the uh, road started, you see, with uh, famous uh, phrase, Ma, you cannot bug the market. There is no alternative. This is the mantra of Thatcher. And the massive transfer of wealth occurred at that period of time from uh, Thatcher and Reagan, both in here as in America. And similarly, it is happening in third world. I come from India. And there are millionaires. The Indian party is so green, if you one look at this, uh, and similar in Bangladesh and Pakistan. So I personally feel I like to know your views about this. The inequality is such gross in the world. Uh, Piketty, if you remember, mentioned about wealth tax. Can I, can I encourage yeah. you to give us a, a crunchy uh, question? Last thing, uh, the, uh, the Fabian pamphlet recently mentioned about the one of, you see, the uh, levy for the super rich, you see. Thank you. What's the question? And the lady there on the left. I'll stand up as well. I'm Harini Iyengar. I work in the city and I recently stood for election for the Women's Equality Party. I want to ask you about money. If we accept the premise that the economy is a system of rules devised by us, then also um, it, I think it follows that the system of money that we have um, can be changed in the same way. And when we all know that you all, you all, for obvious reasons, talked about inequality of income, and, and most people earn income in exchange for work. And some of the things we do, for example, we came to this meeting tonight, most of us weren't paid rather than being sent by our employer. A lot of unpaid work takes place in the family. Mm. A lot of unpaid work takes place on a voluntary basis for charities. Or even on Facebook and Twitter, we spend a lot of time doing a kind of work which we don't expect to be paid for. So, so if it, it follows, some of the things we do could be classed as work or not work, paid or unpaid, and the, some of the rules we have about money could be changed. What systems of exchange 
would you like to see in a circular economy? Mm. Fantastic. Well, um, we, we've had to, uh, some broad uh, presentations and now some very challenging and broad questions. Um, I might direct them to people, but anyone who I've not directed them to, do, do come on in. I don't know who wants to take on the Jesus one, but I wondered if Joanne wanted to have a stab at that, given your family connections. <laughs> I'll take on I'm, I'm, I'm happy to um, attempt to answer that big question. I think he would be absolutely fascinated, obviously, um, because Jesus is interested in everything about our world. And, um, you know, for Tear Fund, we believe that at the root of this, um, it's about broken relationships um, at a personal level, but also at a much wider level as well in terms of a broken relationship between the society and the economy um, and between our relationship with, you know, with the environment and, and God's creation. And so I think Jesus would, you know, it's, it's clear that Jesus is interested in the renewal, and, and Paul talks about the renewal of, of all things being centred around the person of Jesus and the restoration of all relationships. So this is not just, um, you know, Christianity, Christians should not just be concerned about saving souls, but about um, you know, bringing heaven to earth, essentially, um, which is pretty ambitious. But I think the other thing that he would have been interested in is how are you living? Um, and I am so encouraged constantly by, the, um, by seeing um, the way that people are changing their lives and the sacrifices that people are making now with little incentive to actually live differently. And I just find it so inspiring. And I've been inspired to take on many um, changes in my own lifestyle as well. But I also know that there are many things that I'm not doing as well. And that I still, you know, I had a birthday recently. I went and bought new clothes. This is my weakness. Um, Okay, I haven't flown anywhere for a few years on a holiday. And we get green electricity and other things. But um, I'm still kind of, I'm still part of the system. And I'm still not living differently enough, I don't think. And one of the things that I find um, I, I find a bit depressing sometimes is we who know what we know about the state of our planet are not doing everything that we can um, to live differently. How can we persuade others? And I think the amazing thing about Jesus was that he lived and he breathed what he said. You know, he, he was you know, the world's hope and he lived and breathed that. And I think... That's our challenge, is, is to be the change that we want to see. And then we will have moral authority and others will be convinced to follow that path that we've tread. Fantastic. Well done. Um, it's questions like that make me very glad I was chairing rather than on the panel uh, this <laughs> evening. But, uh, uh, Irene, I think you'd like to have a stab at that. But also, can I ask you the, the second question there around inequality and the challenge isn't, you know, surely it's about the political will. How do we change that political will in order to oh, bring about that Oh, easy one. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, they're all really easy, actually, aren't they? Um, okay, I wasn't raised as a Christian, I was raised as a Buddhist. So is that allowable as well? Okay, so... Yeah, no, but I, mean, I think it's really fascinating because I was motivated from, for taking the job partly out of some of the, the values that I was raised with. And I think that they relate to uh, a number of dimensions, I guess. Uh, for me, the Eightfold Path, which is what the Buddha kind of advocates or encourages people to reflect on, give a lot of really practical philosophy for doing. Um, for example, right livelihood. You know, I couldn't imagine a better job to practice right livelihood than the one that I have right now. Um, right speech. I'm amazed at political debate in this country as a recent arrival. And I'm thinking, you know, some of the people that are against the people that are against the people that are against the people, it's 
how can we, we speak differently to each other rather than crush the opponents, you know, or... Um, so I'm constantly trying to think, even coming here, I thought, how can my speech be in a way that inspires and emulates connection? Because the Buddha was very much about saying that all the divisiveness is, is in here. You know, it's not out there. Um, there's right will, and I suppose that speaks to, um, that speaks to the, the second question in a way. Right will that is about reducing suffering. Suffering and the reduction of suffering was very central in, in some of the practical guidance that was given. So for me, there's an enormous amount that we can take from it. There's movements around social Buddhism as well uh, that are around the world and kind of Buddhism in action. Um, so I think that that's, well, that's where I draw a lot of my personal daily, this is why I do things and how I do things. Um, and I guess part of it, and I, we don't talk about that very much, but is the importance of inner work. And it speaks to your, your point um, as well, which I, I felt I heard in it, um, was the, the, the importance of reducing your own desire. You know, no, no more dresses. Uh, um, or at least looking at that and, and kind of going beyond the desire of a dress and saying, well, what's behind that? It's actually often you actually just want to connect with someone and then you go and buy a dress instead because there isn't the social cohesion there or the social connection that is what truly feeds you. So I think there's almost a, it's a circular economy of the spirit that, that I would like to add, that I like to add to this thinking, which perhaps we don't, we don't expose enough. Wow, yeah, thank you so much. Um, Tony, can I ask you to consider the third question there around kind of money and kind of worth? I mean, again, another big concept. Uh, it would be great to hear your thoughts on that. A huge concept, and I would say money, that's a very, very good example of um, something which is presented as a natural phenomenon, but is, of course, completely designed, and therefore you're right, we could design it. What kind of... So to give you an example, money tends to be conceptualized in our um, literature as being a thing, specifically gold, quite often. Whereas actually, if you look at the anthropological um, evidence, um, money is a social relationship. So as time is limited and an act of shameless self-promotion, I invite you to Google money is a social relationship, Tony Greenham, <laughs> and you'll find a TEDx talk on that subject. Um, but uh, how, what kind of, what's very interesting here is the idea of complementary currencies and different forms of, of denoting social relationships. So time banks, for example, is a classic way of, of really um, expressing that some activity that's happening is valuable that the mainstream monetary system is ignoring. However, you get into the difficult question there of not wanting to monetize everything because one of the problems we have is the way that markets and measuring things by money invades every area of our lives. And actually, a lot of it shouldn't be to do with monetary transactions or market transactions. So, um, but it's worth noting that something very important you said, that because of the setup of the money economy, much of the most valuable work in the world is, is, is not valued um, at all through the money economy, and it is often done by women or, or indeed children. Um, and there's, there's a great book actually called Who Cooked Adam Smith Dinner, which I think is a very good <laughs> gender take on, on, on how this has been going on for years and years and years. So it's really, really important to note that. Thank you. I I'm really feel tempted to come in on the mammon bit, uh, really, because I'm not very good at the spiritual bit. Um, the money question, 
actually, you might look at it this way, and we don't want to overplay the circularity thing, but money has two main functions. There are th three, technically, or possibly four. But one is, is a, a store of value, and the other one is a means of exchange, or medium of exchange. Now, who provides the medium of exchange which the economy requires is a very big and important question which has been fought over for a very long time. But if you see money as a sort of public utility, a means to facilitate exchange, why would you leave its creation to private bodies who not only create it, but then allocate it to asset bubbles? That is an important question to sort out because much of the wealth that exists is based upon real estate. And the very creation of money by private organizations, banks as we know, um, it exacerbates the rise in assets, which exacerbates the rise in wealth. In parallel to this, um, it's very often quite interesting to look up Henry George, the economist of the U.S. economist in the 19th century. He's not much known about now, but he said essentially we need to. Uh, Adam Smith was keen on this too, actually. He says we need to tax unearned income. We don't tax the people who produce. We don't tax the labor of the everyday person. We don't even tax profits if you're making something, he said. What we should tax is the money that goes without somebody doing anything. And, and, and this is, this is um, an interesting interrelationship because the creation of money and what is taxed has a very big bearing on this question of inequality and on how we circulate mm. spending. Mm. I just wanted to add Yeah, no, thank okay. you, Ken. That's great. Can we get some more questions, please? Uh, and, and if you can try and keep them tight so we can squeeze in another round for the end, that'd be great. Um, there's a gentleman here on, on the, my right with a white shirt on. Yeah. I feel I should stand up as well if you're going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you all brought up some great points and model economic models that we could perhaps transition into in the future. Um, but I was wondering, and uh, Tony, I think, hit, that, hit the nail on the head when he uh, was mentioning the mythology revolving around the free, the free market that uh, currently exists. Um, and I mean, the only reason that it, that it exists and that it's uh, so pervasive is that for such a long time, so many people have been able to benefit and make a lot of money and... Uh, Can I encourage you to frame it as a question? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm just getting to that. So yeah, my, I mean, my question is basically, um, if, there's, if there's people that still have so much to gain in the system that we have and that are so entrenched and are so powerful, uh, what steps can we be taking now to actually be moving into those economic models that you're um, recommending? Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, hands again. Um, there's a lady here on the my left. Thank you. Um, I've got it in my head that um, world peace should happen by 2018 because it's the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and therefore we're 100 years behind, um, behind schedule. Um, recently, 
um, in April 14th, in fact, of this year, uh, there was a three-day uh, event co-hosted by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace and Pax Christi, where they called on Pope Francis to consider writing an encyclical letter saying that there is no just war because the just war overrides the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not kill. I'm wondering how you can plumb that into your circular economy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, introduce the conflict as well. Um, can we get some questions from towards the back? There's a gentleman there with a paper. Would you mind? Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Bremley. I'm from Worldview Impact, and I've just come back from Myanmar, where we've been restoring huge tracts of mangrove ecosystems. Uh, the regenerative agriculture is quite important. But uh, looking at Bhutan's model of measuring gross national happiness rather than gross domestic product, how can we help those least developing countries actually adopt that model that Bhutan uses? It's not about the money. It's like if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. You're happy. <laughs> How do you measure happiness? Is it about accumulating wealth and stuff, which you're not going to take anywhere when you leave the planet anyway, so what's the use? And uh, if we were to implement that, how would it work? Well, Bhutan is a small country. Its population is not even bigger than, than um, you know, Camden. Maybe Camden has more people. But how would it work to make the circular economy truly sustainable and perhaps address some of the sustainable goals of the United Nations that they've been preaching about, the 17 of them, using the, the aspiration or the inspiration of regenerating the planet, the economics of regeneration to really create those green dream or sustainable livelihoods for the people that live be below the poverty line. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. So again, three rich questions. You guys, you keep opening up even bigger, broader questions than the ones we've already put on the floor. Um, I'm conscious of time, and I think we probably will need to make that the last round of questions. So if I can invite the panel to respond, but also take it as an opportunity to just any sort of closing thoughts. Um, so we have three big questions there. Uh, what steps we can take now to move into those, some of the new economic models we've talked about. How we factor in peace and, and conflict uh, issues into the models we've been talking about. And again, the, the Bhutan challenge, so, so the different kind of ways of measuring progress, that, the happiness index. So again, three small questions. So I'll leave you guys to, to, to pick those as you will and make any closing comments. And you can all kind of go, no, no, if you feel they've ducked a, a really tricky question. Uh, <laughs> who would like to go first? Uh, I'll go on the um, Bhutan one. I think I have to be a little bit, not doomy about this, but economics, if you can get a model that does much better things with resources, energy, and so on, it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily come along with an improved uh, set of human values, uh, not at least immediately. And, we, and you can't make one depend upon the other. You see, part of the rationale apparently for the circular economy is the linear economy doesn't really work anymore. We need a much better one. At least it could work. It could work within planetary boundaries and it could uh, you know, be regenerative. But under which particular system, different countries, communities, and whatever, deal with that, that that's really very variable. And I, I would be, I'm sort of making a call for it to be fairly loosely interpreted in terms of what its social direction might be. Okay, now I'm just putting that in there because it'd be a shame to ruin something that could work well with resources and energy because it has to fit a preconceived view. I don't think that 
uh, is, is that productive. Gross national happiness is still, I think, reserved for Bhutan. Uh, a lot of the rest of the political economies are working on some versions of GNP. If we can work backwards from the previous order, so it's only. Sure. Uh, so um, I would say that circular economy uh, principles can contribute to world peace because, after all, a lot of wars are resource wars. Um, and a lot of conflicts, there's a strong relationship between climate change and, and conflict zones. So I think that's part of the problem. I mean, that's not going to get us to world peace, but I think it's stopping resource wars is <laughs> quite a big step. Um, on the, how to start, well, I think from the bottom up, um, there are, you could look for your nearest transition town, you can get involved. The, there are neighborhood plans, there are, there are ways that you can actually get some agency over your local economy. Not nearly as much as there should be, but start from the bottom up to change the economy. I would suggest start a local currency. And uh, on gross national happiness, I think what's interesting about that framework is that it is a, in that gross national happiness framework, they have lots of different outcomes which that society values, which includes preserving natural environment and social fabric and allowing people uh, cultural and creative space. And that's just an example of what I was suggesting needs to be our approach to the economy. We need to have collective, high-quality, deliberative conversations about what our goals are and then work back from there. So, um, that's, so go and have those conversations and check, check on the RSA's <laughs> Citizens Economic Council project uh, for toolkits to help you do that. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Irene? Oh, boy. Um, well, I think what Oxfam is trying to do is to not, I'm speaking to the first of the last three, <laughs> the, the kind of keeping in mind the vested interest is absolutely critical, and to not mean be naive that just introducing something that is benevolent will necessarily um, even out the vested interest. So, um, as people know, we work, we invest quite a lot in people power and people engagement, I think speaking to your issue. Um, trying to reconnect people with local communities. Um, there's small programs in the UK, but particularly in a lot of other countries. Um, um, we're, because we think that from people and their own consciousness and their own will about what it is that they want in terms of collective well-being can come the direction and, and the pressure on the political system, right? But also in creating the alternatives. So. But then there's also the global level. The global level is also very critical, and, and private sector is hugely important. So we're working, for example, and uh, we've got some initiatives around trying to figure out if we can think of a different construction of com the concept of company, so that it's, it's not about shareholders and profit, but that it's about a, a, you know, a different metric that drives this, the actual architecture of companies. So I. To be honest, I think you have to nudge at so many different places because it is a huge system. And you find the place where you feel comfortable as a human being and you, you nudge it from there. Um, um, in terms of, and I actually wanted to just round off with a comment on uh, the unpaid care from the third speaker in the first round. Um, it's about being naive and thinking, not being naive and thinking systemically. So if you if you bow down to the growth god, which we are all I think saying is a is a 
um, it's got it's used it's reached its use by date. Um, you know, it leads to jobs, and if you look at the DFID, uh, the DFID focus, it's all about jobs. It's all about. But if you're not then careful, you know what we what I'm seeing in Oxfam, we're then moving into economic empowerment. So you're bringing power back, but I th which is fine. But I th but what we've then said, but women, for example, can't use those economic empowerment opportunities if they're not also tackling the you know who makes the dinner question. So we're looking at ways in which the economy can include the currently unpaid parts of it, not necessarily to pay them, and certainly not to say that those are burdens, because they're incredibly valuable contributions to society, but to say if there are ways in which government can step in and um, kind of support some of those tasks, whether some of the norms uh, in society needs to shift so that it's not automatically a burden on women. Again, it's, a, it's about taking the a concept and unpacking it and saying, well, what, what is the system shift? What are the behavior changes that you need at all these different levels? No easy solutions, I'm afraid. But it all needs to be nudged. Yeah. Well, give me where we can. Thank you. Um, Joanne. Great, so I just wanted to take the question about what steps we can take to challenge political interests. Um, and, um, you know, at Tear Fund we're really concerned, and many others share that concern, that politicians aren't acting quickly enough um, and that their ambition is low um, compared to the kind of scale of the challenge that we face. Um, and we're kind of concerned that despite a lot of the um, evidence that is there, there don't seem to be the incentives for politicians to really address the challenges that we want them to address and so um, we're, we're really interested in creating a kind of a movement of people who are willing to live differently and through that living differently and through making choices that at the moment might seem quite difficult um, to change society and change the values and the norms of society you know we think politicians don't um, have the incentive the electorate are not demanding a different way um, or, or different policies and a different approaches from them and we think if we can kind of create this political space um, through changing society, um, that um, they will be incentivized to act. And so Tear Fund is, you know, Tear Fund's kind of added value is really working through the local church, and that's where we see the church can be um, a leader and a catalyst maybe for broader um, social change on these issues. Um, and I just wanted to kind of end with this quote from Ban Ki-moon that you may have heard of. Um, before, but he said, we're the first generation um, to end poverty. Yeah, po ending poverty is within our sights, but we're the last generation that can actually end climate change. Mm. Well, a thought to leave us on. Well, thank you everybody, and thank you to the panel for a really rich uh, evening. So we've had um, some amazing inputs here and I think you know unpacking some of these huge problems and challenges that I think there's a lot of consensus that we're facing as a world so issues of poverty uh, inequality inclusivity environmental degradation and, and kind of economic models that, that don't seem to be up to, to fixing some of these problems as they as they currently are uh, we've had a look at unpacking those in, in, into some of the, the huge issues within them so circular economy conflict uh, how do we begin to redesign and reimagine an economy that, that, that empowers us, that we, that is a possible thing. And we also have some very grounded practical examples. So we've talked about the, the B&B example, the Schiphol example, uh, how, what we can do in our own lives, uh, renewable agriculture, um, circular economy in the south, that is a practical model. So lots of practical models there. 
Uh, and it really feels to me in, in this debate this evening, but also in this wider debate, that we are seeing a sort of emerging, I guess, school of thought. And it's in, a, it's in an early phase because there's lots of different ways of conceptualizing this and coming at it, but an increasing recognition that there's a challenge here that needs to be addressed and some really practical things that begin to nudge us and move us forward into that. And we'd really like to invite you all to continue to be part of that conversation. So there'll be uh, material coming out from St. Paul's Institute and Tier Fund following on from this event and others to continue that conversation. Please do watch this space, as it were, watch the websites uh, and how we can continue to be part of that discussion. Uh, apologies we didn't have more time for questions. It's uh, entirely my fault for chairing our time, not, not as well as it could have been. But as you know, the, this panel is a passionate about this subject, and I haven't asked them, but I'm sure they're not all dashing straight off. So if you want to grab them quickly and ask more massive questions, I'm sure they'd love to engage with you. <laughs> Please do. Uh, otherwise, I think it's just for me to thank you all and thank very much to the panel. <laughs>